Well, friends, I hope that you've kept your Bible open at Romans 5. And you may have noticed as Howard was reading it, it, it's not a straightforward passage, isn't it? And it's one of those passages that you sort of read and it washes over you and you sort of wonder what you've just read. And so to that end, there's an outline in the centre of the bulletin as usual as well. That might be helpful to have open just so that you know how we're charting our way through it. Let me pray. Father God, please help us this morning to understand your word well. Uh, Help me to be clear-minded. Help all of us to have soft hearts so that we would understand afresh just how majestic your son Jesus is and just the extent of what he has achieved for us so that we might be... um, better at living out the calling that we have received through you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In Palestine, uh, the area where Jesus grew up and and lived and ministered, in Palestine there are two main uh, inland bodies of water. Uh, I'm sure many of you have probably heard of them. Up in the north there is the Sea of Galilee. Now the Sea of Galilee is teeming with life. Uh, There are 22 different types of fish in the Sea of Galilee. Fishing is a big deal. The Sea of Galilee, there's vegetation all around the shoreline. Uh, Fruit growing, evidently, is popular in that area of the world. There's lots of green because the Sea of Galilee is all about life. The other main body of water in Palestine is about 90 kilometres south of the Sea of Galilee. It's actually connected by the same river, the Jordan River. But it is called the Dead Sea. The shore of the Dead Sea is over 400 metres below sea level, which actually makes it the lowest point of land on the entire earth. As the name implies, the Dead Sea pretty much has nothing growing there. That's because the salt content of the water is so high that nothing survives. There are no plants around the shoreline. There are no fish whatsoever in the Dead Sea. And so the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, two bodies of water pretty close to each other, actually connected to one another, and yet two bodies of water which in one sense could not be any more different. One is full of life, the other exudes nothing but death. Now that sort of contrast, that sort of comparison between life and death is basically what Paul is on about in our reading from Romans This morning. It's a passage all about life and death. And it talks about those two things not by comparing two bodies of water, it does it by comparing two people. It does it by comparing Jesus and Adam. See, look at how the passage starts. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through the one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Now that verse starts the passage off by referring and talking about Adam. Adam and Eve Adam, you know, back in Genesis. He's not actually named in the passage for another couple of verses yet till verse 14, but Adam is the person being referred to there. He is the one man through whom sin and death entered the world. It's all described in the book of Genesis back in the Old Testament, chapters 2 and 3. Dave looked at these chapters earlier on in the year, you might remember, when we did the course of your life together. Remember that? Adam figured 
in Genesis 3 that he knew better than God. And in a monumental act of rebellion and stupidity, Adam decided to eat from the one tree that God told him not to eat from. And as a result, as punishment of that rebellion, death, you see, entered the world as judgment on mankind. And from that moment on, humanity became pretty much like the Dead Sea. Life became difficult. Life became harsh. Life became frustrating. We live a life with the shadow of death over everything. And even this week, here in early church, we've experienced the sadness of that with Audrey's passing away. It all started with Adam. But today's passage wants to encourage us with the news that Jesus changes everything. And it really is like the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. Adam brought death. Jesus is all about life. And the passage brings this out. It's a complicated passage, but basically it operates by firstly describing the differences between Adam and Jesus, and then it goes on and describes a similarity between the two of them. Firstly, there's a difference. And verse 15 pretty much takes us to the heart of this difference. Verse 15, But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man... How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Okay, now, let's take a pause. It's a bit of a convoluted wording, but did you see the difference in that verse between what Jesus brings us and what Adam brings us? It says, many died by the trespass of the one man. It's a reference to Adam. In other words, Adam's sin brought death to us. We've just been chatting about that. But it goes on to talk about how the gift of Jesus brings grace to many. In other words, Adam brought death, Jesus brings mercy. The implication is that Jesus brings life. But even more than that, the implication in this verse is that Jesus brings abundant life. Because in many ways, it's the last phrase of the verse that is the most important that the gift Jesus brings, it says, overflows to the many. In other words, what Jesus brings to us doesn't just cancel out the effect of Adam's sin, it completely submerges the effects of Adam's sin. It overflows. The good which Jesus brings us far exceeds any bad that Adam brought us. The help that Jesus brings us is at a whole different level of magnitude to the harm that Adam caused us. See, it's like at the moment our poor old car is showing its age and it's got quite a few dings and scratches down the side of it. All my fault, I'd have to say. But imagine I put our car into the panel beaters to get the dents taken out of the door. And when I go back to pick the car up, they haven't just repaired the door, they've put on all new tyres around the car. And they fixed all the suspension noises that are there. And they've reconditioned the engine. And they've given the whole car a new paint job. And they've cleaned it up all the inside. And they've detailed it. And so when I go and pick the car up, they have done way more than what needed to be done simply to repair the damage. Now that's what this verse is saying about Jesus. He hasn't just cancelled out what Adam did. He has massively surpassed what Adam did. The gift overflows to the many. Now, this idea of Jesus doing more good for us than Adam did harm 
this idea persists into the next verse, verse 16. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many transgressions and brought justification. Get the point? Judgment from one sin, God's grace actually covers over many sins. And so again, the grace from Jesus is heaps greater in equivalent size to the judgment that came from Adam. And so it's not, it's not that sort of, you know, Adam takes humanity back one step and then Jesus comes along and puts us forward one step and so we're simply back at the one spot. No, no, the grace that comes from Jesus actually sends us way forward. We are way out in front because of what Jesus has done. This idea of Jesus doing more good for us than Adam did harm for us follows into verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will, and let me just pause there, because I don't know about you, but I'm now expecting this sentence to go on and say something like, if the trespass of the one man uh, if by the trespass of the one man death reigned, I'm expecting it to go on and say something about because of Jesus, life will reign. doesn't actually say that. It says, if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man? Now, it's subtle, I know, but do you see who's doing the ruling? It's those who receive God's provision of grace. In other words, it's not just an abstract idea of life somehow reigning, whatever that means. It's a much more concrete idea. It's a much more vivid image of us reigning in life, which is an intriguing thought. In what sense do we reign in life? Is it talking about life now? Is it talking about the life to come? Is it the new creation? Now, in chapter 8, this will get spelled out in a little bit more detail. For the moment, though, just recognise that what Jesus brings us is again surprising us in its bigness. And again, notice all the language of excess here. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace? It's all about lavishness. It's all about oversupply. It's all about overflowing. It's all about surplus. Roll it all up with the previous two verses. Are you getting the big difference between Jesus and Adam? It's not simply that one brings life and one brings death, as fantastic as that is. It's that one brings way more life than the other brought death. And so it's not that Jesus comes along and neatly cancels out what Adam has done so that we're back to the status quo. Jesus comes along and oversupplies what is needed. He obliterates whatever bad there was so that now in Christ we are way better off than before. All of which means Jesus and Adam could not be any more different. Mind you, that's not to say that they're not also similar in an important aspect as well. How are they similar? That's what the passage goes on to say. Verse 18. Consequently, Just as, and now with that phrase, just as, it's setting us up for a similarity rather than a difference. Just as the result of one trespass, that's Adam, was the condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness 
was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. According to the Guinness Book of Records, the largest number of dominoes to ever topple, you know how they people put dominoes, line them all up, and then you knock the first domino over and it knocks the second one over and then knocks the third and then that knocks the fourth. I won't go on because the record number is 4,491,863 dominoes. I have no idea how long it took them to set that up. Or toppling because of the result of an action right at the beginning which triggered lots of consequences. Now that's the image that verses 18 and 19 are playing on. It's, it's actually, after the subtlety of all the other verses, it's actually a pretty straightforward point now. Jesus and Adam are similar because they both do something that triggers off consequences for the many. The thing that Adam did was sin. Thanks for that. The ramifications to the many were terrible. Sin and death and judgment entered into the world. Through the disobedience of the one man, we were made sinners. One action, terrible consequences. The thing Jesus did is described in verse 18 as an act of righteousness. Now, to be honest, I'm not really sure what that's a reference to. It could be a reference to his sacrifice on the cross, or it might be that Paul is summarising all of Jesus' life as a single act of righteousness. Both could work. Whatever the case, he's making the point it's the same as Adam in that one action, massive consequences and wonderful consequences this time. Life and grace and justification now enter into the world as through the obedience of the one man, many are made righteous. All of which, by this stage of the passage, is starting to set us up to see that there are basically two types of people in this world. That's what the passage is leading us towards. Two types of people in the world. And it's not extrovert or introverts, and it's not Mac or PC people. It's whether those people, whether people are living under the consequences of Adam or whether those, whether people are living under the consequences of Jesus. And everyone in this room and everyone in your life And everyone in this world is either one or the other. The people who serve you at the shops, the people you share a home with, the people who will be in the cars that you drive past on the road this morning, every single one is either one or the other. Either living under the condemnation and judgment that comes from Adam or living under the grace and the life and the justification that comes from Jesus. So who are you? Who are you? Adam or Jesus? Whose consequences are you living under? I hope it's Jesus. Because remember the differences? The consequences aren't even equal in strength. Because the grace and the life that comes from Jesus absolutely swamps the condemnation that comes from Adam, which makes it all the more important to have life that comes through Jesus Christ. And really, that, for a complicated passage, that really is the main lesson of the passage. It is the importance of Jesus and how he and only he can undo the effects of Adam's sin. 
the importance of Jesus and how he and only he can give us life whereas Adam only brought death. And that lesson really jumps out of the passage when we notice one other little thing about the text and that is in the verses that I haven't even mentioned yet because the Old Testament law pops up in this passage, doesn't it? Did you notice that? Right up there at the beginning in verse 13, it talks about sin being in the world before the law. That's the Old Testament law, but that sin was not taken into account when there was no law. And then down at the end of the section, it's back about the law again, verse 20. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, what's going on here? Why is the Old Testament law suddenly popping up in the passage? It wasn't there last week. Well, what we're bumping up against here is actually a very characteristic way in which the entire book of Romans is written. Can you remember, Brownie points if you do, way back to chapter 1 where Paul said that he was writing this letter to the church at Rome so as to explain to them the gospel because he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Remember that? Well, ever since that, ever since chapter 1, the way the book works is that Paul firstly describes a bit of the gospel and then he goes off and defends why he's not ashamed of that bit of the gospel. And then he goes back and he explains a new little bit of the gospel and then he goes off and defends and says why he's not ashamed of that new little bit of the gospel and then he goes back and he gives a new little bit of the gospel and he gets... Here's the thing. Whenever Paul defends why he's not ashamed of the bit of the gospel that he's just explained, it's always in terms of the Old Testament law. That's because it's the Jews who were the main ones who were giving him a hard time about the gospel. And so what he does is he says something about the gospel, then he goes off and he explains why he's not ashamed of it to the Jews. Bottom line... Today's passage is essentially a defence to the Jews of what he was telling us last week. Remember last Sunday? It was all about how, because of Jesus, we now have peace with God. Remember that? We have peace with God in the present. We have peace with God into the future. We won't have to face the day of wrath. And this week, Paul is defending this idea about the importance of Jesus to the Jews by underlining the fact to them that only Jesus can bring us that peace. Being a Jew won't bring you that peace with God. Keeping the Old Testament law and keeping the stuff like the Ten Commandments won't give you that sort of peace with God. Because after Adam, all humanity came under condemnation. Sin entered the world through that one man, death through sin, and being a Jew... And having the Old Testament law did nothing to change that. All the Old Testament law ever did was draw attention to the problem. And so, verse 13, sin was in the world before the law, but it was not taken into account before the law. In other words, ever since Adam, sin has been there, which just didn't register with us. We didn't take account of it until the law came along and drew attention to the fact that we weren't obeying God. Verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. 
In other words, the whole point of the Old Testament law was to highlight our disobedience, to increase our disobedience, if you want, by drawing attention to the sin that entered through Adam. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Today's passage is actually, I think, one of the trickiest ones in Romans. But in the end, the punchline's pretty straightforward. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And being a Jew and having the Old Testament law and trying to keep stuff like the Ten Commandments did nothing to change it. The way it was changed was by another man, the man Jesus through whom, when you trust what he did on the cross, grace overflows to the many and we will reign in life and we will be made righteous. At its heart, this is a passage all about the fact that the only hope this planet has is found in Jesus Christ. Humanity is trapped under the consequences of that first sin and the only way out It's not by trying to keep rules and regulations. It's not by trying to keep stuff like the Ten Commandments. It's not by by being a Jew. The whole point of all that sort of stuff was to draw attention to how trapped we were in sin. The only way out of this mess is Jesus. But what a way out. Because just like the disobedience of Adam has consequences for the many, so too the obedience of Christ has consequences for the many. And whereas Adam brought death, Jesus brings life and grace and forgiveness and justification. Evidently there's an airport in, uh, on the eastern edge of the Himalayas in Bhutan which is widely regarded as the most difficult airport in the world to land on. Uh, Planes have to weave their way down a valley through the Himalayas, around mountains, uh, coming within metres of houses that are on the mountain sides, and strong winds sort of whip through the valley, making it even more tricky. Passengers who have been on flights to this airport have described the landing as terrifying. So treacherous is the landing on this airport that there are only eight pilots in the world who are qualified to land there. Now, I don't know about you, but if I ever have to fly to Bhutan, I'd be making sure that my pilot was one of the eight. Uh, No one else is going to cut it in that situation. From today's passage, God wants you to know that when it comes to undoing the consequences of Adam when it comes to removing the judgment and the condemnation that flowed to us all through that one man, there is only one other man who can cut it. No one else will do. No other world religion will help. There is no way keeping rules and regulations is going to make up. The only way out of this mess is Jesus. Which takes us back to that question I asked earlier with maybe even a greater importance, doesn't it? Who are you with? 
Adam or Jesus? Because that's the only, there are no alternatives. Adam, Jesus. If it's Adam, he's all about death. If it's Jesus, he's all about life. Overflowing in abundance. Hope it's Jesus. Maybe there's some people in your life who need to hear about him. I'll pray. Father God, thank you that uh, even in this complicated passage at times, we see and appreciate the magnificence of what Jesus has done. Father, thank you that Jesus has taken us out of the condemnation and the judgment that has flowed to us all through all of us being sinners. And Father, we want to thank you for the way in which grace and life and justification and freedom from punishment overflow to us because of what Jesus has done. Father, we pray that we'd be the sort of people who would keep living out the life of suitable thanksgivingness for all that you have done for us in Christ. And that these things about Jesus wouldn't be things that we would keep to ourselves, that we would be excited about sharing it with those in our lives whom we love. It is in Jesus' name and for his honour that we ask this. Amen.